I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days an Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is, as usual, brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about the Australian island state of Tasmania. Formerly known as Van Diemen's Land, This verdant island is roughly the size of Ireland, but with only 8% of its population. Tasmania, or Tassie, lies 240 kilometers or 150 miles south of the Australian mainland, and the state encompasses the main island of Tasmania, which is the 26th largest island in the world, and the surrounding 334 islands. Just over half a million people live in Tasmania, 40% of whom reside in the island's largest city, Hobart, which lies on the banks of the Derwent River on the south side of the island. Up until the early 1800s, the island was inhabited exclusively by Aboriginal Tasmanians, but was soon after claimed by the British and converted into a penal colony. For the next 50 years, around 75,000 convicts were sent to the island, which was viewed as a kind of prison without walls. In 1854, its name was changed to Tasmania, and in 1901, it became a state in the newly created Federation of Australia. Joe, what can you tell us about the early history of Tasmania? As I'm so prone to saying at the start of these episodes, we don't know a lot because... Um, Fantastic. Uh, you know, writing. There's, there's no written history from the native people before European contact. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there, there's a lot of archaeology um, that makes it clear that this place was inhabited for a long time. Going back to about 43,000 years ago, when the island was joined to mainland Australia by a land bridge. So this was a warmer period before the last ice age and um, the seas were lower and so Australia and Tasmania were connected by, by a, a walkable piece of land for, for many millennia. So like, there's evidence from, from 43,000 years ago of a, of a settlement near modern-day Hobart, which is the capital of the state, around this mm-hmm. period. And um, within a couple of thousand years, they'd reached the, the southwest of the, the island, was populated too. So there were people everywhere living in caves and, and various other kinds of settlements. So 36,000 years ago, the land bridge flooded for a few thousand years. There's evidence that, uh, excavated at Worrying Cave that indicates that um, at this point, they were probably the most the most southerly humans in the world were living in, in this cave in Tasmania. Wow. So that, that's cool. Um, there's evidence from 20,000 years ago of, uh, of ochre Mines. Um, I'm confused by the idea of an. Oh, am I maybe mistaking it for okra? Uh, what, what, what's 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 okra? Well, okra the is kind mines, of a yellow pigment. Uh, oh right, okay. Which so, is um, pretty important to Tasmanian Aboriginal customs is that they they would use these pigments to paint their skin and stuff. Ah, okay, cool, nice one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know they were mining it twenty thousand years ago, and they were still using it into the nineteenth century as part of various traditions. From 18,000 to 12,000 years ago, there was a gradual warming at the end of the Ice Age, resulting in people moving around a lot and increased settlements in certain cave sites. So places that had been 
you know, there were probably places that are now underwater that were occupied at that point. Mm. Uh, people moved from mainland Australia during this period um, as the seas rose and the land bridge got flooded permanently. And there is uh, evidence for the practice of controlled burning of the grass plains, which has had an important ecological impact on Tasmania. So um, the Aboriginal people did a lot of... They, they used fire technology a lot to control the natural world they would stop bushfires by controlled burning of, of of scrubland almost manipulating the land so you would encourage uh, animals that could be hunted like kangaroos which are really really difficult to, to hunt as I, I'm, we're going to touch on later but they're oh, right. they're, yeah okay. they're really tricky to to, to hunt um the, the, the way the aboriginals used to hunt them i believe was in large packs basically sort of like surround like packs of like hundreds of people trying to surround oh, a, wow. a, a kangaroo because they're, they're super fast. Yeah, not, not an uh, easy thing to, to do. Not an easy animal to hunt. Moving along, 6,000 years ago, the island assumed its current coastline. Um, so that's sort of the, the high tide line until, until now. Uh, the mm. diet of the people it consisted of shellfish, mutton birds and land mammals and, and things like kangaroos as well. And this is all... The, the most useful archaeological thing is... is is basically dumps and so on middens so from piles of trash people leave behind you can tell a lot about uh, prehistoric cultures yeah. that's um one of the more disgusting aspects of archaeology is digging through uh <laughs> digging through landfills essentially um they use a lot of batteries um <laughs> right <laughs> the only th- the only thing i can think of that uh is actually good about that is that uh, future generations will be spared our like love of you know awful racist tweeting uh, that's true that that, that is in our landfills yeah. we're digging through like jesus he's got these guys loves r- racist tweet uh <laughs> I, we think it, yeah. we think it was a racist tweet based economy uh racist tweets were a commodity mine from the racist tweet mines and uh oh, jesus <laughs> uh, and two thousand years ago most of the island is occupied and indeed um some of the offshore islands are start being occupied by by people using canoes to go out and set up seasonal uh, places for sealing and, and bird hunting. In the in the nineteenth century, when there were a lot less Aboriginal people, some anthropologists and amateur scholars did try to learn a bit about their culture and traditions and collect some of the Palawa language that was spoken before it um, before it vanished. And some of the stuff they kind of extrapolated, which should be taken with a pinch of salt. I mean, the, the, the book I was reading some of this in is one of these 19th century colonial um, books. So it's quite patronising mm. and and, uh, and inherently racist. But some of the points I was able to glean from that was that um, the Tasmanian Aboriginals were, were generally shorter than, than English people. Um, coming back to the, the ochre. Um, the ochre. Okra. Is it two syllables? Sir? <laughs> I don't know. It's not something I use in my day-to-day beauty <laughs> regimen. But um, Tasmanian Aboriginals did. Um, they generally didn't really wear clothes because it's... Oh, my. The climate is reasonably It's pretty mild, mild most and, of the year round, yeah. Yeah, and also um, it's not uncommon for people not to wear clothes before... Um, before and they didn't have the church to, you know, yeah. whip them and beat them and so on. Um, 
So adornments like, like fur and shell necklaces were common, but men would often cover themselves mm. in grease and, and this, this red pigment and put that in their hair as well, which would help to keep you warm. So covering yourself in grease is a, another strategy. Grease me up, woman. <laughs> and, uh, and women tended to shave their heads. And also, oh, cool. both sexes displayed uh, some ritual scarification, where you'd have like, parallel lines of scars oh, wow. on your chest or your arm or something. So that, that was, again, not something out of the ordinary in tribal societies. And then much like mainland uh, Aboriginal society, there, there were corroboree dances, as they were called, which are sort of ritual, um, spiritual dances where people would act out stories from their... They reckon there were about nine nations of, of um, Tasmanian Aboriginals when Europeans arrived, who, of course, occasionally had wars and hostilities, but not mm-hmm. to uh, necessarily huge extents, given the, technolo- the technology of war wasn't particularly advanced. There were spears and so on, but there was no real um, use of metal weapons or anything. More's the pity. Yeah. Not for uh, them and them, but, I mean, for what was to come. They... Sure, sure. And then they have interesting beliefs about that didn't really seem to have a, a god, but definitely there was evil spirits about in the world which needed to be um, warded off. And uh, there were various... I, I actually, I kind of like that, that appraisal of, of, of religion. There, mm. there is no god, but there is a devil. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I could kind of sign up to that, thing, you the know? The best you can hope for is not to run into him. That's, that's, that's yeah. pretty much yeah. it. There, there, There's there evil are... and the lack of evil, which is not necessarily yeah. good. And I think it's um, it's frowned upon to talk about dead people in in detail. I, I know a lot of um, a lot of Aboriginal cultures in in Australia generally don't like to see photographs or hear recordings of of um, of deceased Aboriginal people. We should probably flag that there will be one later in case you're of that persuasion. Um, but that's uh, that's part of the kind of spiritual mindset of this part of the world is that when the dead are just left you don't want to interfere with them once they're gone all right when you're dead um, you're dead and in in the western tribes they bur- they burned their dead and carried the ashes around sometimes where other tribes buried them in hollow trees or in rock graves and so that kind of brings us up to when um when europeans arrived there were about three thousand to ten thousand people on the island, we'll never know for sure. Wow. Estimates vary. Um, some say as low as 1,000. Some go up as high as 20,000. Um, there's some talk that there may have been a, a disease epidemic not long before the Europeans arrived, but that's kind of all based on oral history, um, mm-hmm. which may have, again, explained why the population declined so much after European settlement, in addition to the usual reasons. And now um, yes, the, uh, the British are coming, I believe. Oh, well, actually, not just yet. The, the Dutchie. The Dutchie are, are passing on the left-hand side. Ah, okay. um, <laughs> so actually, just just on that issue of population. So like later on, I'll, t- I'll mention some specific numbers of, of population, which are like above 1,000. But that was, you know, decades after Europeans had turned up and, and, and done awful stuff. But... The one thing I'll say is like reading all of these kind of explorers turn up in uh, Tasmania and so on, they all seem to, to some greater or lesser degree, encounter the natives. And I think Which isn't that always maybe... the case in, yeah, in exactly. colonial and it, times. It, yeah. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a big place. Like, as you say, it's like almost the size of Ireland. It is about the size of like the main island of Sri Lanka. 
it's mm. it's a it's a big island. Or and Idaho, I think, keep, is also about the mm. same area for our and, US and if they keep running into them, I mean, yeah, okay, they're probably closer to the coasts for you know fishing and and gathering shellfish and stuff. But um, I think there was probably quite a few people there. Yeah, um, and they were quite widely spread because they were kind of hunters and gatherers. They weren't settled into um, into towns or anything, but so they would yeah. have moved around a lot more perhaps than other cultures but still they as i said they seem to have been pretty much everywhere so um 24th of november 1642 i have in all caps white folk arrive to the surprise of absolutely no one um <laughs> this is always a, a joy to, to the native populations when this happens it's it's yeah huzzah ah, yay oh no ouch stop <laughs> So, uh, they're led by Dutch explorer Abel Tasman. You, you might get a, a base root of his surname there, of what, what, what the place ends up being called. He landed uh, at an area that's today known as uh, Blackman's Bay. He actually approached from the uh, west. And he named it Van Diemen's Land after some uh, local Dutch head honcho. I think he was, you know, the governor in Jakarta. Or so, like, his boss. Yeah, his boss, basically. The, the main it really fella. doesn't help that Van Diemen's Land. I mean, we'll, we'll come back. Yeah, to like, it sounds it's like a land of particularly the dark place. Which might have gone unnoticed had it got a different history. Mm. So the Dutch had strongholds in Indonesia and Taiwan. So they were, they were like really high on the hog at this point. So it made sense that the Dutch were the ones exploring. So they, they failed to land. So they skirted around the south coast, uh, trying, one assumes enthusiastically, attempting to land at Adventure Bay. Ooh. Before being driven out by a storm and ending up in Storm Bay, <laughs> um, <laughs> eventually, eventually they land at Blackman's Bay and send some men inland to check it out. Wait, what's the bay called again, Mark? Black Blackman's Bay. Is, is, is it, is Black it potential bay. that they 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 encountered some Aboriginal people I in, don't, in, in this bay? I, no, I don't know. I, I just. I just, I'm just saying the name okay. of the bay. All right. I don't want to just because, yeah, just because of the, the, the previously <laughs> White unimag- Man's Bay. Like, what? Unimaginative oh, names. Stop uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, there was some, the day we had the down. storm. There was the day we met the black man. And there was there the day was we the... had an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like hearing about a day at preschool. For yeah. <laughs> um, so they land at Blackman Bay, Blackman's Bay, and they go ashore. They sent two small boats, well armed with muskets, sidearms, and pikes. Uh, and when they came back, they actually brought strange vegetables, uh, including something that tasted like samphire, that kind of weird green thing you often see in like the fish section of a grocery store. And also something that they said uh, looked like it was like a, a vegetable that they had encountered at the Cape. So uh, as in Cape Town, mm, South, Africa. South Africa. So actually, this this account is essentially from, from the diary of, the translated diary of Abel Tasman. Mm-hmm. So they also discovered something else while ashore. Though they had heard some sounds and some, what they said was, you know, music-like sounds, uh, like a trumpet or a small gong not far away, they hadn't seen anybody. That's That's creepy. They had seen two trees which bore notches made with flint implements. The bark had been removed for the purpose. These notches formed steps to allow people to climb up the trees and rob the birds' nests, they assumed. Uh, They were about five feet apart, so that the the men concluded that the natives must be actually very tall, which we know now is not true, uh, or must be in possession of some sort of um, artifice or some device to allow them to get up the trees via the notches. 
In one of the trees, the notched steps were so fresh and new that they seemed to have been cut less than four days ago. That's very specific. But it's very spooky as well. They're just like, it's like turning up in someone's house with the door open and you're just and like... The, the place is still warm, stuff. but there's no food on yeah. it. Exactly. They observed certain footprints of animals, not unlike those of a tiger's claw. And they tried to collect water and so on, but couldn't really find anything. And the weather started to pick up. So they decided to return to the boat. They arrive on the boat and they had been expected actually quite a bit earlier. So the guys in the boat were like a bit, you know, a bit, bit late. Um, but they had assumed that the smoke signals they saw from the island were coming from the away party, Ooh. telling them that they were going to be late. No, in fact, they were pretty sure they were being watched the entire time by mm. the natives. Uh, so they decided to plant a flag very quickly and get the F out of there. Uh, this is a, a quotation from the account of how the, this is them planting the flag. We then ordered the carpenter aforesaid to swim to the shore alone with the pole and the flag. Our master carpenter, having in the sight of myself, Abel Jans Tasman, skipper, Yerit Jans, and subcargo, Abraham Cummins, performed the work entrusted to him. We pull back with our pinnace, pinnace means boat, as near the shore as we ventured to do. The carpenter aforesaid thereupon swam back to the pinnace through the surf. This work having been duly executed, we pull back to the ships, leaving the above mentioned as a memorial for those who shall come after us, and for the natives of this country, who did not show themselves, though we suspect some of them were at no great distance and closely watching our proceedings. Wow, there they were. So uh, he left, only to then discover New Zealand, uh, to be the first uh, white person to find New Zealand, where they were chased off and kind of murdered by the Maori. Uh, Fair. Th- Not th- as shy this, as this the is a pattern. It sounds like. That, that's kind of my earlier point about it probably would have been better if they were a bit more warlike because I think the Maori do a bit better in the fullness of time. Yeah, well, wasn't it that the, the Maori had, had recently conquered New Zealand from some less warlike people? So they were in pretty good shape to, uh, <laughs> to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're not going down without a fight. So pretty much nobody turns up until about 130 years later. And we have the French, Marc-Joseph-Marien Dufresne. He was employed by the French East India Company, which collapsed in 1769. He convinced Pierre Poivre, who you might remember from our Seychelles episode, that is the Peter Pepper Peter of the nursery. Peter Pepper mm. picked the place. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter Pepper sent Dufresne to um, check out the area. So, so part of his job was to return a Tahitian native, Ahutoru, to his homeland, because this was a thing to, to go to this area of the world, steal a native, and bring him back to Europe, and everyone would kind of have a gawk at him. That, that was step one of his mission. Okay. Step two was to find the mythical land of Terra Australis Incognita. The idea was at the time that the land north of the equator needs to be balanced by land south of the equator, otherwise, I don't know. The earth is going to fall over. Um, yeah, okay. So they figured that they needed to be a big Europe-sized continent on the south of the equator, so they were looking for it, basically. So he was sent to find this and to return Ahutoru. Ahutoru died of TB on the boat, so scrub As, as, as with this tradition at the time. Mm. So they need fresh water. Uh, the boat is the Marquis de Castrier. Uh, on the 3rd of March, 1772, his sailors sighted the coast. They rounded the most southerly point, and on the 5th of March, they anchored off Marion Bay, close to where Abel Tasman himself had anchored 130 years before. Uh, led a party ashore in two boats on the 7th. 
Uh, they were the first French explorers to reach any part of Australia, and apparently the first Europeans to encounter the Aboriginals of Van Diemen's Land. Hmm. Initially, relations were cordial. When a third boat approached, however, a shower of stones was thrown, and Marianne Dufresne ordered a retreat, and then ordered a volley of shots. He then sought another landing place, but was again showered with missiles. One of his crew being speared in the leg in this encounter. Mm-hmm. Marianne Dufresne gave the order to fire and give chase. This time, at least, one Aborigine was killed, and this was essentially the end of his time there. After this kind of, you know, back and forth, he was like, we're done. He would continue on to New Zealand, where he and quite a few of his shipmates would be killed and eaten by the Maori. Oh, <laughs> killed and eaten. Right. Wow. <laughs> yep. Nice. It's, it's like they were absolutely massacred wow. by the Maori. Yeah. And and the Maori still still there, still mm. still a going concern. So big ups to them. Okay, 1773, Furneaux, who is essentially uh, Captain Cook's number two, mm-hmm. he had a brief separation from, from Cook's second voyage and became the first British person to set foot on Tasmania. And he produced a detailed chart from which many of today's names are taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 77, Cook himself uh, visited the island. He breathed through in his third voyage, but very, very quickly. Uh, 1788, I just found this last night, actually, as I was doing some emergency final panic reading. William Bly, mm. captaining the Bounty, oh, the Bounty stopped yes, off in Adventure Bounty, Bay yeah. to replenish resources before having a famously mutiny-free voyage. Uh, <laughs> he, he, no mutinies there, Governor. Um, and then approaching the turn of the century, Matthew Flinders, uh, a name that we will... All of these uh, people are about. islands now. <laughs> yep. Furno, uh, Flinders, Matthew Flinders and Tasman. <laughs> Matthew Flinders and George Bass sailed oh. through the Bass Strait, yeah. determining for the first time that Tasmania is indeed an island. I mean, determining for white folks for the first <laughs> time that Tasmania was an island. All the people who live there, I think, got it. Yeah. They noticed. Uh, the Bass Strait, which we probably should mention, is, is now the name of the stretch of water between uh, Tasmania and mainland Australia. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So... so there was already other British colonies in that part of the world by now, was there? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, I mean, I mean, the, the motivation, you're going to start to see colonies pop up in, in Tasmania. And part of the motivation for that was because the British had their colonies and they had quite a lot of, I mean, quite a lot of colonies, but not so much in Australia that they really felt that they'd a firm grip it. Mm, okay. I mean, they were really you know, like around the fringes and they were concerned by the other major powers who were, uh, at that point, France was big in the area. They were worried about France. So they thought, here, lads, we need to we need to lock it down, yeah. put a ring in it, as it were. Yeah. So they have, but just New South Wales at this point? For Yeah, for sure. They have uh, Sydney. I think they've got Victoria as well, you know? Okay, Although but, but, yeah, but not, definitely not the whole continent yet. The British have a bit settled Australia and are the most settled of the European powers, okay. I think, as far as, as far as that goes. But it's not Australia yet. It's just like... The, 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 the southeast corner. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So just to talk a little bit broadly about uh, penal colonies and this whole Ooh, tradition. penal colonies. Yeah. Uh, so the British, the British government began to transport uh, convicts, send its convicts overseas to their American colonies in the early 17th century. And then that ended with the advent of the American Revolution. We're like, great, we lost that colony. Uh, so where are we going to send our convicts send our now? Prisoners. Good job, numbnuts. Yeah. So where are we going to send people now? 
uh, and they looked to Australia. Uh, and over the next sort of between 1788 and 1868, about 162,000 convicts were transported by uh, the British government to various colonies in Australia. Wow, my. Mm. So uh, most of the convicts, uh, some of whom we will hear more about uh, later in the episode, were sent to Australia for actually relatively petty crimes or what we would consider mm. petty crimes today. And several of them were also political prisoners. So more serious crimes, such as rape and murder, were punishable by death. So you're not going to be getting on a boat if, if, you, if you murder someone. I, uh, I was doing a little oh bit of God. reading behind this just to get my head around it. And mm. it seems like the reasoning behind transportation was that before this point, pretty much everything was, was punishable by death in the British legal code. So and then they know, did they they didn't and have they felt that maybe death for for stealing was a bit much yeah and hanging yeah. people for you know forging forging money was a little bit excessive and mm. maybe there was something more useful you could do with these people so we're sending though, them halfway around the world is not excessive I mean less like looking at looking looking at it from this this side of history yeah it looks pretty bad but it was uh, an attempt to sort of be less Soften bloody the, the, yeah okay and give but, people but an opportunity to, say, to uh, reform I mean, themselves as part of a new society but that did involve mostly breaking rocks in the hot sun yes uh, exactly i mean like the, they're not the first to to have a punishment of essentially indentured servitude no. as a punishment for crimes i'm pretty sure like every society had mm-hmm. that pretty much up to that point so it's not, it's not necessarily a massive leap forward it's sort of it's mixing like, hey we we they Mi- forgot. They forgot about it for a while, and we're just just killing people. Like, oh, we can also enslave them. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah it's kind we of mixing exile, which was a, a traditional punishment for political mm-hmm. crimes in particular, and and indentured servitude, which is a an old solution to a, a problem. Yeah, and I mean, as as, uh, as we sorry, mentioned, I, I just... they also wanted to kind of you know build out their infrastructure and their their mm. you know their presence in in Australia. So this is like a handy one-two punch, I guess. <laughs> this is. Where we'll send people and then you know they're going to help us build our colony out there so and, and at times they let companies who were working in the colonies choose their prisoners they'd be like mm. we'll take the strong men please mm. and what about the rest just leave them in jail in england it's fine yeah which is mm. kind of horrible and led to massive gender imbalance in in australia which we might touch on later mm. we might do so once they were emancipated uh most ex-convicts would end up actually staying in australia and would join the free settlers, uh, mm. of whom there were many as well. Uh, and a lot of them would rise to prominent positions in Australian society. And, you know, in later years, I suppose there would be some kind of like social stigma around like being descended from a convict. Uh, but actually now, apparently it's it's kind of a source of pride for some people that they're they're descended from from uh, from these, you know, transported Aussies, man. convicts. What are you going to do with them? <laughs> uh, and apparently around 20% of modern Australians are uh, descended today from from transported mm. convicts. And I think that that's so, higher in I, Tasmania I think, than think, anywhere else as well. Yeah, I would imagine so, but yeah. I, I'd say that's a, as a very conservative number. I mean, given like the interconnectivity and like how many generations it takes mm. to, like we're, we're all descended from Genghis Khan, basically. <laughs> that, I mean, pro- probably everybody has a bit of convict, uh, convict blood. <laughs> it really does time. depend on the crime, though, doesn't it? Like if, you, if your great-great-grandfather was a sheep thief, you could be like, yeah, stealing sheep from the Duke. You show him, granddad. Yeah. But if he was, you know... Alexander so Pierce. On, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Say, say a terrible crime. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to one particular notorious yeah. guy later. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think here's a good time to take a break and then um, we'll talk a little bit about like the specific uh, penal colonies on, on Tasmania. 
Cool. Pop quiz. Do you know what Roald Amundsen, Marco Polo, Ferdinand Magellan, and Neil Armstrong all have in common? Well, yes, they are all explorers. But also, all of their names are used for different reward tiers on our brand new Patreon page. By choosing any one of them, you'll unlock special perks and bonus content, and you'll even have a say in what locations we cover in future episodes. Check out patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, or just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. So from the 1770s, as I think you mentioned, Mark, like a lot of the island was familiar to uh, sealers and whalers for whom the island was particularly popular. Uh, a lot of uh, apparently a lot of seals uh, to be had around this area. Delish, man. Delish. Never, never eaten seal. So Captain Cook had claimed Australia for Britain in 1777, but uh, Van Diemen's land was not included in that claim until the 26th of January 1788. So... Around uh, around the late 1700s, the British in New South Wales had re- had you know noticed that there were a lot of French guys creeping around on this on this island that's not too far away, and uh, yeah, again as you as you said, Mark, they they wanted to establish more of a firm grip on uh, this area, and they did, they didn't want to let Tasmania become uh, part of a French colony or potential French colony. So in August of that year, 1803, New South Wales Governor Philip King sent uh, Lieutenant John Bowen to establish a small military outpost on the eastern shore of the Derwent River in order to forestall any claims to the island by French explorers who had been uh, poking around the southern Australian coastline. So Bowen led a party of 49, including 21 male and three female convicts, uh, and named his camp Risdon. And that was the first permanent colony settlement on the island. So this is the first permanent settlement on Tasmania. And the location was chosen. And if you look at the map, Brisbane is like not too far away from where present day Hobart is, which is the southern side of the island, which I thought was kind of curious because it's like, you know, the furthest away, like furthest point from uh, from mainland Australia, which, you know, would mean they would have to sail all the way around the island to get there. But this is where, like, uh, I suppose the the main city is today, and this is where like a lot of the early colonies were set up. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's just because it's particularly habitable, uh, particularly habitable part of the island. But I, I think I think the other two explorers also ended up basically landing in like what is effectively modern day Hobart. And the reason for that is because it it has a, a sheltered bay. Yeah. If you look at the the map, like it goes all the way into the interior of the yeah uh, of the island. It's a broad everywhere else river it, basin no sort of a setup. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it seems hard to land anywhere yeah. else. Uh, so, yeah, the area was chosen because of that and also because previous explorers had noted that uh, this area was particularly lush. Bowen himself said that it was, quote, more like a nobleman's park in England than on than uncultivated country. And he didn't realize at the time that that was because this area was regularly maintained by aboriginals through regular burning that we right. mentioned earlier. So it was cultivated. So it was cultivated, uh, yeah. although they didn't realize it at the time. The settlers uh, tried to hunt both kangaroos and emus, both of which they noted were particularly difficult to shoot um, <laughs> because they move so fast. Um, but the settlers soon trained dogs to hunt various types of game in the area. And this would be the first introduction of uh, domesticated dogs to Tasmania. Mm. And they would have a huge impact, actually, on the you know the development of the island from this point forward. Uh, I believe greyhounds actually were, were their preferred you know, huh. breed of dogs to uh, hunt down kangaroos. I guess for speed. And they, 
Yes, and they were far more effective than than trying to shoot them with guns. So they trained the dogs to hunt kangaroos, and then uh, they were <coughs> readily supplied with uh, plenty of meat to eat. And uh, apparently, that that was a one of the key trading commodities the sealers had. Yeah, they became really valuable on the island as well. Yeah, yeah dogs. So uh, several months after that uh, colony was set up, then a second settlement was established by Captain David Collins, five kilometers to the south in a place called Sullivan's Cove on the western side of the river where fresh water was more plentiful. Uh, that colony was formed with uh, 308 convicts and that would later be, uh, come to be known as Hobart, Hobarton or Hobart Town, which oh. is, you know, present day Hobart and was named after the British colonial secretary at the time, Lord Hobart. And Collins, who was leading this camp, he'd fled from Port Phillip in southern Australia after repeated attacks from uh, Aboriginals and struggles to find fresh water and food. And in his party of convicts were seven recently disgraced soldiers who had uh, been involved in the mutiny at Gibraltar. Huh. So, uh, All right. yeah. Oh. It's good lads. So, yeah. And in the course, I believe, of him moving uh, the colony from uh, mainland Australia, southern Australia, to Tasmania... A small number of his uh, convicts opted to flee. And I've got a quote here from uh, David Collins. He said, We cannot but pity the delusion which some of the prisoners labor under in thinking that they can exist when deprived of the assistance of the government. Their madness will be manifest to themselves when they shall feel too late that they have wrought their own ruin. After those who have absconded, we shall make no further search, certain that they will soon return or perish by famine. Nice so that, that that sort of speaks to the fact that they they didn't feel the need to keep a close eye on these convicts convicts in the first place because they knew that they couldn't survive outside of the the colony anyway. Mm. Wow. But this gives rise to one really interesting story. A guy called William Buckley, Buckley. who was born in Macclesfield in the UK, and had been arrested for carrying oh, a uh, stolen bolt of cloth, which he insisted that he was transporting <laughs> for a woman and didn't know that it was stolen. So it's a real, real hardened criminal there. Yeah, stolen bolt of cloth. Uh, Bit of twine. Yeah, and he was uh, he was sentenced to, I believe, thirteen years in the penal colonies for this stolen bolt of cloth. So that will give you an idea of some of the some of the petty crimes that these people were convicted of and then sent to live out their days in in this in these kind of colonies. So reports say that this this guy uh, William Buckley was somewhere between six five and six seven. Ooh, wow. Yes. And quote unquote savage looking, uh, wow. yeah. So he's one of the people that escapes during this this transportation. He separated from the rest of the convicts who had fleed, and went off in his own you know his own direction. As as that quote I I just mentioned earlier will allude to, you would have expected him to die off pretty quickly, particularly on his own. But he survived for several weeks, and at one point picked up a spear that had been shoved in the ground and started using it as a walking stick. And okay. later, when he wandered into a group of Aboriginals, uh, into an Aboriginal village, the natives greeted him warmly because they thought that because this, this spear had been used to mark a grave of one of their fallen soldiers. And <sighs> they believed that this guy, this gigantic white savage, uh, was the returned spirit of this fallen soldier. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah. So you would think walking into, you know, as a quote unquote savage looking guy walking into an Aboriginal village with a spear, uh, he wouldn't have done <laughs> so well for himself. With a gravestone under your arm. Yeah. <laughs> I found this outside, lads. This, is, this, is this yours? Yeah. So he was welcomed by the group and then he proceeded to live with them for the next 32 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. 
So he learned the language. I believe he had a family. He uh, learned all the customs, their hunting traditions, everything. So like this gigantic white guy. Were they not suspicious that their dead friend didn't know all of that already? I, I, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> this is this is what happened. Uh, and then eventually, 32 years later, he, he came across like, I suppose, when Australia was was more, you know, widely colonized. Uh, he, he came across a party of British soldiers. And I'm sure that was a surprise for them to encounter this this giant wow. white guy, you know, with a bunch of aboriginals speaking their language and, you know, conversing fluently with them. And he told them their sto- his story and they pardoned him of his crimes. Sure, you would like, I mean, and I believe they actually employed him. They like, you know, brought him on as like a guide and an interpreter. Yeah. And he went on to live out the rest of his days in Tasmania. And I think there's a really interesting part of the story where apparently Australians and if you're Australian, please write us and let us know. uh, But apparently Australians uh, use the term you've got Buckley's chance even to this day to mean you've got slim to none chance. So basically he had you know, very little chance of, of surviving his escape. <laughs> wow. And, and I mean, I think that's probably know. a best case scenario of transporting someone halfway around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, for theft is that yeah. they end up being, a, you know, essentially a, a live-in anthropologist. Yeah. So both of the colonies and uh, Risden and Hobart flourished at first, but then after a while, the burning of the land, like regular burning of the land and the uh, brush around them, led uh, the settlers to believe that the Aboriginal was trying to attack them or drive them away. And this, the tension underlying that situation uh, erupted into what would be called the Risden Massacre, when around mm. 300 Aboriginals approached the camp uh, at one point and were in the course of a kangaroo hunt, which I think I mentioned maybe mm. before we started recording or possibly earlier in the podcast. Like that's apparently how Aboriginals hunted Uh, kangaroos at the time were in large groups possibly trying to surround the kangaroos i'm not sure but they stumbled into the camp anyway and um settlers believed that they were being attacked and fired on the aboriginals the details of the whole thing are kind of still debated today but three aboriginals were killed and one young child uh, was left behind and was later baptized by the settlers which i'm sure aboriginals were not too happy about and that kind of sowed the conflict sowed the seeds of conflict between these two groups which I'm sure you're going to talk a little bit about more later, Mark. Oh, good. Yeah. In late 1804, there was a third settlement. The third settlement on the island was established on the north coast, about, I think it's like a a hundred miles or so uh, to the north Mm. on the banks of the Tamar River. And that was called Port Dalrymple. And And this is is the much more obvious position where you would have thought. Yeah. Right across from the Bass Strait. Yeah. Yeah. But then in 1804, again, the Napoleonic Wars, England goes to war again with France, and the colonies at Van Diemen's Land were largely forgotten about. Um, yep. So by 1806, both of the original southern colonies had almost exhausted their supplies of kangaroos, which had become their food staple. And at one point, they'd been killing 100 each week. Oh, God. Yeah. And the kangaroos well, eventually... Well, you're a weak man myself. Yeah. Cigarettes, <laughs> uh... no kangaroos. I kill 100 <laughs> kangaroos a week. Yeah. So the kangaroos obviously wised up to, uh, you know, maybe stay away from this part of the island. Or just died. Hundred of, hundred of so, yeah. There's only so many kangaroos. Yeah. Like there's, they're there not only so many infinite kangaroos. resource. Yeah. So th- this led to uh, kind of hunters going further and further out of the settlements and then encountering more and more aboriginals, mm-hmm. which kind of, again, sparked uh, conflicts between no, the two no, groups. No, 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 um, at one point, the government began to pay uh, hunters for meat. 
So they were sort of higher freelance hunters, uh, which became, you know, these people became known as bush rangers. And they would go out and like live out in the bush and hunt meat and then bring it back to the government. And that's how they would sustain themselves. And then I think the 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 most important thing between these three colonies was that eventually um, in 1808, they both kind of linked up and began mm. like trading goods between themselves. And that sort of helped ah. all of them to become more self-sustaining. At one point, then they were they were also bolstered by the arrival of other uh, convicts from Norfolk Island. Yeah, this this was an interesting one that I, I stumbled across yeah. in one of these these old nineteenth century history books. Which I think we should come back to Norfolk Island in and of itself at some point. Sure. Um, but it was the original place for second transportation. So the idea was you were transported to New South Wales as a convict. If you did something bad in New South Wales, what happens? <laughs> Um, and because these are fire. criminals, you know, some of them are going to do a bit of ex- bit yeah. more stealing or a bit more, yeah. you know, recidivism. And so, as a as a further punishment, they set up um, Norfolk Island as a sort of a horrible, tiny little island far, far away from the faraway place, where you could be further transported. You're not fucked, mate. And uh, but it, it it as a as a colony didn't do very well because there wasn't much. And this is all, a cruelty-based economy. Yeah, they're, and they're all like second-rate <laughs> offenders. So. They're all the worst criminals. The criminals yeah. who can't stop criminaling. Yeah. Uh, and so eventually, in, uh, in 1808, they sort of abandoned that forcibly. And, and 700, uh, both free settlers and convicts. Uh, actually, more importantly, it was the free settlers, though. 700 people who weren't convicts were moved against their will from from um, Norfolk Island to Tasmania and they formed a big part of um, of what becomes Georgetown in Port Dalrymple and also New Norfolk near to um, near to Hobart and that nearly doubled the population of Tasmania at that point okay so yeah I, I think at that those two events like the linking of of the southern yeah. and northern colonies and then the the people from Norfolk. Norfolk Island you know because I, I know those two colonies were kind of suffering from lack of food and water at that point but um once they once they started to link up then they i suppose the the colonization of the entire island then became sort of inevitable at that point on the suffering point um i i read a, a thing where the inhabitants were so starving uh, and this is in the, the colony that was actually doing better like this is after i think after risden was essentially abandoned the other colony that people were resorting to scraping seaweed off rocks and scavenging washed up whale blubber from the shore wow so they were like <laughs> That is, that's pretty yeah, low, rough. low in the barrel there. Yeah. And then speaking of hunger. Okay, uh, yeah, it's a good segue. Um, yeah. So one of the most notorious convicts transported to Van Diemen's Land is a guy called Alexander Pierce. You may have heard of him. There's been a couple of movies, plays, books written about him. Um, I first came across him in a book called The Road to McCarthy by, by travel journalist Pete McCarthy. Very interesting book. I did read that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, he's got two books that kind of explore where yeah. his surname ends up around the world, which is kind of cool. So he goes to Tasmania in search of somebody, some distant relative, but he recounts this story about an Irishman called um, Alexander Pierce. He was born in County Monaghan and he was. sentenced Ooh. in... Animals. Fucking animals. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in uh, 1819 he was sentenced to um, deportation in Armagh Circuit Court for the very serious crime of 
uh, more cloth, cloth stealing. Close, oh, close. It's, it's it's um yeah, it's clothing based. Stealing six pairs of shoes. Um, wow. Completely unreformable. <laughs> he was sent to Van Diemen's land. Um, <laughs> so in shoes stealing piece of shit. He didn't. He didn't really fit in in Van Diemen's land, and uh, he he forged a money order at some point, and he absconded and went missing and a £10 reward was put out for his, his capture uh, anyway in 1822 he was secondarily transported from this secondary transportation place so people were sent from New South Wales to Tasmania if they were bad and then people were sent to Tasmania and they needed an even more bad place to send them and uh, this is Sarah Island in Macquarie Bay out on the west coast which is Okay. Pretty much inaccessible, except by sea, and even then. Yeah. Um, and this is a quote from, from Niall Fulton, who, who wrote and produced a film called The Last Confession of Alexander Pierce. He described it thus, It's the most isolated prison on the most isolated island in the world. Sarah Island had no bars or walls. The impenetrable rainforest and shark-infested oceans that surrounded the island meant that any potential escapee had nowhere to run. Sound like a wow. challenge? Uh, so you you just drop people on this island and just leave? Is that no, no, like, they they had like they had to break rocks and build, right. you know, stuff. Like they had to work really hard because that's how you reform people is by working to death. You're making shoes and an ironic punishment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can make your orders. own, Alex. You can make your own. Get down the okra mine, there, fella. Come on. So what did he do, Joe? So along with seven others, Pierce. Uh, mounted an escape so they were working on the east side of the harbour cutting down trees or something and they, they decided to run away um, none of them knew how to hunt or fish or anything good start good start so the hundreds of miles of rainforest were going to be easy uh, Robert Greenhill an English sailor he had the axe so he appointed himself the leader of the group because he had you the axe you have my axe <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so after a couple, after two weeks, they were very hungry and didn't know how to hunt or fish. And they decided fish. to eat the axe. No, no. So Greenhill suggested they, they draw lots to see who will be killed and eaten. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. Now, this may have been influenced by the fact that the bread they ran away with possibly had ergot in it, which can make things a little bit hallucinogenic. Um, okay. This may have upped, upped the kind of up the ante a little on the crazy Uh, but they were now out of hallucinogenic bread so eating people is the only option Uh, (laughs) I would really want to be the guy that's carrying the axe at this point so it's only fun it's only funny because it's 200 years ago like it's it's actually horrifying Um, this is I mean I'm trying to imagine uh, like a worse situation to end up in you're like you're you're two in weeks into the, the, the most isolated island in the most isolated place in the world, and you're surrounded by six other convicts, and you're talking about who you're going to kill and eat. Yeah, like does life get any worse at that point? <laughs> like, well, I, I think to be one of the six that doesn't have the axe. That's true. That's <laughs> like very you're, true. You're 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 a rank down in this group of convicts. Yeah. I suspect if Greenhill had pulled the short <laughs> straw, he wouldn't have been eaten. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, axe beats short straw. So yeah. I don't think anyone really took it seriously until. The guy who pulled the short straw was was axe murdered, and uh, then three of the uh, the other escapees decided to promptly run away. 
uh, which to may have where? been a good call. Two of them made it back to to Sarah Island. Oh, um, really? <laughs> like, oh, please take us that, back. Yeah, I think the other one <laughs> yes. didn't do so well. So they kind of reported step one of the um, madness. Of the four remaining escapees, Greenhill had had a had an ally and his friend Travers, while our our friend Alex Pierce and uh, another Irish guy called John Mather were were sort of on their own. So two so, against two, basically. Well, so, no, two against one and one. Okay. Right. So Pierce made it three against one and survived to see another axe murder. Oh, sweet. <laughs> This guy is pretty, pretty astute. Does he always beat me odds. Fella. Always beat me odds. <laughs> I can count. I can count to four. Travers was then, luckily for Alexander Pierce, bitten on the foot by a snake. Greenhill okay. insisted they carry him for a few days, but when it became clear he was uh, becoming a burden, Greenhill killed him, and the pair went on their merry way with pockets full of the choicest cuts of Travers to wow. sustain oh them God. for another few days. And then I have in my notes... At this point, everything was very bad. Which oh, really? Was it? <laughs> it wasn't bad before this point. So they're hallucinating. They're high on, on the, 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 the madness of eating man flesh. Uh, they're starving and really tired. And it's basically a, it's a who falls asleep first contest. Because Greenhill wow. still has the axe, which puts him in pole position to not be eaten. Yep. Uh, however... He didn't have the not-falling-asleep stamina of Alexander Pierce. Oh, and no. when he eventually conked out, um, he was quite, quite a thoroughly eaten. Uh, by Pierce? Uh, by Pierce, yeah, the only remaining escapee. So that's, you know, within a couple of weeks, Seven becomes one quite crazy guy. Who has eaten most of the rest of the party. <laughs> Bits off, yeah. Jesus. Bits off. Um, it wasn't, in his defence, it wasn't his idea to start this, but he finished it. He fucking finished it, yeah. Um, Seven becomes 1.4, like, or 1.5. So... Uh, Him and the lumps in his pocket. He yeah. continues alone. Of course, you didn't have any tinfoil or... No, not um, alone. I've, or, got, I've got my or, friends um, here in my pocket. Yeah, or, or, or sandwich bags or cling film. Close oh. to my heart. It's just like you got a, you know, you've got a bit of arm in your pocket that you nibble on as you walk. It's oh. pretty grim. So he raided an Aboriginal campsite for food at one point and then he was caught getting closer to civilization by a bush ranger. He was caught eating one of his lambs. Which is better because to step he, up. He's um, tired... Of the taste of man flesh. Well, yeah. there weren't any more people. I, I, I don't. Th- I don't think like now that he's switched to lamb, that means he's like uneating the other guys. I don't think that builds up credit for him. He's still eating like six guys. Ah, uh, no, three of them escaped. Oh. He's, he, he's only eaten like, like. Okay, he ate all the people three. he's encountered thus yeah. far. If given half an opportunity. Now, by a bizarre twist of fate, because um, everyone was Irish and a criminal. He knew the bush ranger whose lamb he was eating. Oh my god! So another another Monaghan fucking yeah maniac. yeah they they knew each other Monahaniac. And so this guy kind of ah, Alexander just yourself. Everyone in Ireland knows everyone else in Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah. They're they're all from Blaney. Those yeah, sure. Like Blaney. everyone's from Blaney. Uh, it's like ah, Alex, just yourself. Hi. Uh, do you want to join our our bush ranging um our bush our our, our bush ranging convict uh, gang, as as 
Pierce like did. pushes some fingers into his pocket like un- <laughs> inconspicuously. Yeah, I think he played it cool. Oh, yeah. And so he, he he joined their their sheep stealing um racket with his with his new friend. And eventually they were all captured and the other two were hanged for sheep stealing. Where Pierce's confession was considered too crazy to be true. Still beating the odds. <laughs> he is still beating the odds. Like he told he told the, he the told Irish, governor eh? everything. And they went, you're just covering for your friends who are still on the run, aren't you? You didn't eat them at all. Oh, my God. Wow. That was oh the God. angle they took. So he was, he was on the run for 113 days. And he was sent back to Sarah Island. Less than a year later, oh convinced by a, by a young man named Thomas Cox, who kept pestering him about, how did you escape, Alexander? How did you escape? Oh, he decided to show him how Let he me show you. Oh no! Uh, Alexander's stealing the axe first this time. Yeah. No way he's going to be the axe first. <laughs> yeah. So he claims it, we call it the axe rule. He claims he didn't have any uh, initial plan to eat Thomas. The goal was to escape, <laughs> but when they reached a river, I mean, and he found out that Cox couldn't swim. Well, he's going to drown of inevitable. anyway. So. So um, it's amazing. Like, and he he was captured with bits of bits of Thomas Cox in his pockets. So this time there was no sort of questioning his uh, his admissions that he he had been very cannibally, and his alleged last words before he was hanged for, you know, all the stuff, was um, alleged, is, man's flesh is delicious. It tastes far better than fish or pork. Wow. <laughs> Regret nothing. <laughs> I think that's an appropriate time for a break. Uh, I need a break. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. All right, we'll be back after this. You rambling boys of Liverpool, I'll have you to beware. When you go a hunting with your dog, your gun, your snare. Watch out for the gamekeeper. Keep your dog at your command. And think on all the hardships going to Van Diemen's land. Okay, so let's zip on. Um, right. One of the, the, the most infamous penal colony after Sarah Island was probably Port Arthur, which was named after George Arthur, who was Lieutenant Gov- Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land from, I think, 1823 onwards. And the idea of this place kind of came from a change in attitude to what prison should be. The idea in Port Arthur was very much um, not hard work and punishment making you reform, but like being, you know, you know the idea of the panopticon, that like you know the prisoner should always I do not know the panopticon the idea that you should the ideal prison would be one where the guards could see everything the prisoners did and they'd know they were always being watched and therefore they would yeah. change their ways constant surveillance constant surveillance holy crap um, you know sensory deprivation to give you time to think about your actions solitary confinement oh, if God. you were bad this is all considered reform in the penal system because uh, it wasn't back breaking labour it was you, you know, psychological rehydrate. And so Port Arthur was kind of built on this premise, I think, or at least quite quickly adapted to this premise. 
Yeah. Um, and the, the prison, <laughs> the prison itself is located at the end, like on a small island at the end of like a isthmus. Mm. It's called Eagle Hawk's Neck. Worth looking on Google Maps. Like it's so ra- yeah. jagged that it, it's only connected at this one point, but it's a huge isthmus. Yeah. And it's not so it's naturally fortified, surrounded by water, which it was rumored at the time to be shark infested by the wardens of the prison. Mm. And the 30 meter wide isthmus is the only connection to the mainland and was fenced, guarded by soldiers, man traps, which I want to know more about what the hell man traps are, and (laughs) half starved dogs. Uh, Oh my god. So, uh, yeah, Port Arthur had some of the strictest security measures in the British penal system. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, like we mentioned uh, earlier, this was like a secondary offender uh, prison. So yeah. it was for people who had been sent to Australia as part of, like, a penal colony and then had, had you know, reoffended there. Uh, so, like, right, you're going to Port Arthur, which is right. rumored to be escape-proof. I have here one of the most in, in one of the most infamous incidents in the prison's history, uh, just for its bizarreness, was the escape of, or the escape attempt of one George Billy Hunt. Hunt disguised himself... <laughs> Using a kangaroo hide, so I presume like dressed up as a kangaroo, <laughs> and tried to tried to flee across the isthmus. But this this the half-starved guards on duty tried to shoot him <laughs> as as a oh, kangaroo because they thought he was a kangaroo, and they were hungry. Uh, yeah, like the dogs. Um. Yeah, um, and when he noticed them like pointing the guns at him, Hunt threw off his disguise and surrendered, and received 150 lashes for his trouble. And uh, just one other thing about Port Arthur is that there was a, a small island off, I believe, off the prison, like off the main island, called the Island of the Dead. And it was the destination oh, for everyone who died inside the prison. So there's like uh, fif- about 1,500 graves exist there. Mm-hmm. And only 180 of those are prison staff and military personnel. And they're the only ones that are marked. The rest of them are all unmarked graves. And uh, wow. yeah, Port Port Arthur it's, as it's a prison. It's now a popular tourist attraction. Is yeah, to go to the it, creepy it island of death. It closed in 1877 as a as a as a prison, and now it's like mm. a popular tourist attraction. And it's actually famous now for uh, mass shooting in the 1990s, well, we'll which we'll talk about a little bit later. Ah, yeah, right. Mm. And just one more thing from this era is the um, that there were also female convicts, less but but some, and they mm. were largely incarcerated in what were called female factories. Which is yeah. a strange name. Where they make where you make women. Um, yeah. it, it's. I think the idea is that they were like they would work there, so it was a factory in that sense. Um, right. Mm. Uh, there were ones in uh, Launceston and Ross and a few other places, and um, I don't. Know, we should get into it. But the Dollop did a really long profile of of this whole system from the point of view of yeah. of homosexuality in the prison system. And how attempts to stamp out lesbian activities in female factories, I think, brought down a governor at some point because he had to keep um, reporting back to England. But uh, I, let's just wow. the, the dollop does quite an interesting take on that that's worth listening to. Um, if, so uh, I actually re-listened to that mm. that dollop because I'm also a, a, a fellow dolloper. Um, so um, just to give you an idea, like it, it got so bad that it created a panic in Britain mm. about all the homosexuality they were creating by sending people there and a panic in Australia that the Aussies just basically thought that, wow, Britain is just clearing out all the homosexuals. Mm. So every boat of convicts that came in, they were like, 
there is a bunch more homosexuals and they would, wouldn't let them land. So they, uh, in certain cases, they actually had to like leave the port and go to a different port to try to try that. And uh, William Gladstone in particular tr- got very involved in the issue. Who was prime uh, minister. Gladstone is, well, actually, no. Oh, when he was opposition. Was, um, I think. He was, he was, no, no, he was a colonial minister, minister, minister for the oh, colonies. Okay. But Gladstone was, like, he, he's super famous. Like, he's, there's a, a statue of him outside Parliament. Mm. Uh, he was uh, prime minister four separate times over a period of... Uh, About 50 was years. Prime minister for 12 yeah. years. Yeah, and over a period of, like, yeah, 40, 50 years. Um, and I actually found a, a reference here that he was referred to as G-O-M, as Grand Old Man. But according to Benjamin Disraeli... God's only mistake. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, it's pretty, pretty, pretty rough. But um, they went so far as to suspend transports to Tasmania for mm. a while. They were so worried about all the homosexuality they were creating, um, which is how that works. Yeah. That, um, in fact, the they women, were just putting, they, you know, thousands of women in women-only institutions and some of and, them and are gay. Well. You know, we, because some of them are gay. We, 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 because some both. people are gay. And they just, yeah. so they hadn't noticed it before when people weren't living in dormitories mm-hmm. being watched by guards all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> there, there, there was an account in the, in the dollop, which was the kind of the standout image for me, was of, of one of these, um, uh, in one of these woman factories or female, female factories, factories. <laughs> whatever they were called, that they, um, they had these kind of gangs called flash mobs. That's what they were known as, apparently. Um, and they they detail how one of them attacked a priest and tried to cut his penis off. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I forget the reason behind that. Yep. Uh, I think that it was in, like, to punish him for punishing them for all of the sexual misconduct uh, that, that he was reporting on. But anyway, yeah. So th- this was an actual thing. And the, the view was, you know, at a certain point that, well... They're they're all homosexuals down in Tasmania, all homosexual convicts. And that was kind of the stereotype. Re- of the recently, time. they voted quite quite strongly in favour of uh, allowing same sex marriage. So uh, maybe they're they on something. Um, anyway, so moving on to a darker period of Tasmanian history, I, I, I'd like I'd like you to listen to a song to to kind of. Get us back into into the mode of thinking about the indigenous people of the island. So that that really crackly recording is is actually pretty remarkable because as far as I know, that's the only recording of a Tasmanian Aboriginal person singing in their native language. It was recorded by Dr. Horace Watson in either 1899 or 1903. There were two different recordings. I'm not sure which one that is, but recorded onto wax cylinders with a stylus. Basically, you had to shout into a big horn and the, the vibrations of your voice would make a stylus scrape a wax cylinder. So this is really early audio recording technology. And the fact that this mm. exists at all is from that long ago is remarkable. But here is the here is the singer introducing herself. I'm from Smith. I was born on Christmas Island. 
I'm Fanny Smith. I was born on Flinders Island. I'm the last of the Tasmanians. So, the reason we don't have a more up-to-date recording of anything to offer is that claim of ours to be the last Tasmanian. And, uh, well, how did that happen? Well, well... But before before I get into this, and there's a lot here, um, I have to give massive thanks credit to uh, Science Po, which is uh, one of the the big they're referred to as the, the Grand École. They're the the educational institutions in France that basically educate you know all the higher ups. Uh, but they had a project where they went through the history of uh, Tasmania and documented every single um, you know, active aggression massacre what have you, uh, between the, uh, the, the colonists and the, the convicts and so on, and the uh, Aboriginal Tasmanians. So the first one actually mentioned is the one that you covered, Luke, which is 1804, May 3rd, at Risdon, the Risdon Massacre. Mm-hmm. And just just to, an add-on to that, you, you mentioned there's about like three, four dead. Um, that's approximately what I have as well, but there was a second account. They actually went back 26 years later um, and some administrators on, you know, in, interviewed on the topic and people's accounts changed. Originally, they, they said that they had been attacked by the natives. Later on, they admitted they weren't, that they were the ones who instigated it and that instead of five or six, mm. you know, three, four, five, six dead, it was actually more like 40 to 50. Wow. Um, that's, that's actually a common thread through a lot of these. A lot of these, you know, the, the information actually comes out later on. So I'm going to skip, I am I am skipping a lot of the, the entries in this, in part because um, it would just be uh, increasingly sad me just listing out Massacres. casualty numbers. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I've, I, I have, I've pared back the list a lot. Um, starting actually is uh, a pair of uh, uh, convict Bushmen who, you know, similar to, to Pearson, these guys had, had pegged it and was living, living wild. Uh, and this was, you know, a big concern for uh, colonists. They were really worried about these guys who were just kind of like out in the hills, picking people off, uh, not necessarily eating them. But uh, two of these guys were called Lemon and Brown, and they were reported to have tortured and killed five different Aborigines, uh, two male and three female. Their, their story, this is just a, a quote from a, a book I found on bushrangers generally. Um, Lemon and his mate John Brown had escaped from a farm on Patterson's Plains near where St. Leonard's was afterwards built. Their first crime was that of murdering Corporal Curry in cold blood by bashing him nearly to pieces with a shovel. Right. Poor Private Grindlestone was treated in much the same way when he went to the Corporal's assistance and the two criminals made off into the bush. This was in 1806. Uh, This is when all the starvation was happening in in Tasmania. So, poor Private Grindlestone comes upon them. here's, Here's some quotations from that encounter. What are you doing? Oh, not that, not that. Don't burn me, he pleaded. We'll have to give him something to keep the heat out then, won't we, poor little chap? He don't like it too hot, does he, said Lemon through his teeth. So these devils bound him up tightly in the bullock hide and tossed him screaming into the heart of the fire where blindly jerking and struggling with ever-diminishing convulsions, they left him. So these guys were like animals. These were like maniacs. Um, eventually they were uh, caught by a guy who tricked them into letting him get close by pretending that he was carrying flour, which they wanted to steal. 
They forced him to go to a nearby house to steal from them and bring the stuff back. He came back with rum, got them all drunk, and then he shot him in the head. Uh, he cut off the other guy's <laughs> head in a bag to the governor to the cheers of everyone. So, they're, they're, they're like these were the guys who were just like out in the wilderness, just killing and torturing the Aborigines. Just because they that, met that was them. like, and they yeah, were mad. Basically, so they were like awful maniacs who were up in the hills. Like ima- imagine, you know, Alexander Pierce is the first white guy you meet. Yeah. What's your opinion of white guys after yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Like, so these the, these guys were out there. So th- that's the context really of the things. interactions between. Yeah. 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 It, it, that and massacres. 1816 to 1818, kidnapping of Aboriginal children becomes widespread. Government notices continue to outlaw the practice to no avail. In retaliation, Aborigines raid settlers' huts and burn crops. So they were stealing their children, and some of the Aborigines obviously reacted against that. 1817, Hobart. When visiting missionary Roland Hassel asked, Why are there no natives seen in the town? The answer given was, We shoot them whenever we find them. So there essentially is practice being shot on sight. Right. Now, in the 20s, there was an expansion of the pastoral land in terms of the, the farming and, mm. and taking care of sheep. Um, it was opened up in pastoral settlement between 1821 and 1830. The population, the colonial population, more than tripled. It went from about 7,000 to about 24,000. Plus 5,000 convict stockkeepers and shepherds. Yeah, so this so would have been an increase in, uh, in free settlers as well significantly yeah so farmers tripling of free settlers and then another five thousand convicts to do the work uh in 1823 sally peak east coast november 15 a group of aborigines near grindstone bay confronted four stock keepers about their abduction of aboriginal women that's the aborigines killed two stock keepers exactly and wounded another the fourth man ran to his master's house to raise the alarm the two Aborigines were caught and convicted of murder and hanged in 1825, but the reprisal killings that followed were not made public for 30 years. A party of 30 colonists, comprising constables, soldiers, and neighbours, so, you know, all the great and good of society, set off in bloody revenge. This is a quote. They proceeded stealthily as they neared the spot and, agreeing upon a signal, moved quietly in couples until they had surrounded the sleepers. So the Aborigines were sleeping. The whistle of the leader was sounded, and volley after volley of ball cartridge was poured in upon the dark groups around the little campfires. The number slain was considerable. Yep. How dare you not like us stealing your sisters? We will shoot you in your sleep. Following the killing of 18 colonists, alleged killing of 18 colonists by Aborigines. So it wasn't all one directional. I mean, there were killings happening in the other direction. This is a war at this stage. But one set of people were being were being colonized. Yeah. And I mean, wiped essentially, out, so. th- this is th- there. There was a government notice essentially saying to treat the Aborigines as open enemies. Yeah. This measure was considered by the press as a declaration of war against the Aborigines. The ensuing conflict would later be known as the Black War. But I mean, to call it a war is a total misnomer. It was a practice, a practice that continued and eventually got labelled as a war. But ethnic this, cleansing. This has already happened. No, yeah, I mean that'd be that's, a that's better in, in, in the in the purest form of of it, I would say. Eighteen twenty seven, stockkeeper Paddy Hegan quote shot nineteen of the Western natives with a swivel gun charged with nails. Oh. In February eighteen thirty, the government introduced a bounty of five pounds for every adult Aborigine captured and two pounds for every child. Wow. Oh. Uh, 
135 Aborigines were killed in 29 incidents. 75 colonists were killed in in the incidents as well, um, with a, a Aboriginal colonial death ratio of nearly two to one. So the the fact that Aborigines deaths were dropping in this kind of two year period suggests that largely they were they were bit pushed out of the area slash killed out of the area. In 1830 to 1835, they captured about 50 who had fled the settled districts and about 200 others from other tribes in parts of Tasmania for deportation to Flinders Island in the Bass Strait. Yeah. Many died between capture and deportation. Robinson reported to the colonial secretary that the entire Aboriginal population are now removed to exile. So, so Ro- Robinson, who you mentioned there, it's George Augustus Robinson. Yeah. He, he was appointed yeah. protector of the Aborigines by the government, I think was his oh title. My God. Which, I don't know. Um, I think at some point someone realised that maybe this is a bad thing, but far too late. And he yeah. was sort of um, he was a builder and a lay preacher. So I think his motivations were to sort of civilise and, and, and uh, you know, save the souls of the Aborigines. Mm-hmm. And his thinking was putting them all in Flinders Island. They'd be safe from being killed by bushrangers. And he could teach them how to be Western. Um, so generally, I think, you know, not considered a terrible guy by the lights of the time, but he basically right. put all these people, about 100 people, we'll say, were, were left of the population. I think it was 100 and, 165, and then quite a few of them died in, in transit. In, influenza also um, ripped through the settlement. Uh, yeah. So, J- just, just a small conclusion, and of course Flinders Island was where Fanny was born, mm-hmm. mentioned, mentioned earlier on. In 1823, an estimated 2,000 Aborigines were in the settler zone. By 1831... Only eight years later, an estimated 448 of them had been killed. So about a quarter of them had been killed by the colonists. Uh, the level of killing was probably more intense in this period and in this place than anywhere else in the in the history of Australia. Mm-hmm. It was also estimated that about 250 colonists were killed by the Aborigines, which actually strangely makes the Aboriginal colonial death ratio two to one which is far lower than Victoria, where in the same period, the death ratio was actually 12 to 1. So both the colonists were getting killed at a higher rate than anywhere else in Australia. Also, so were the Aborigines. Um, I, I don't know what to make of that, to be honest. That's just, it's, that's just detail. But also to say that probably the, the numbers of Aborigines killed because of lack of reporting and lack of anybody really caring and, you know, mm. essentially open season being declared on, on shooting Aboriginal people, um, it, they weren't accurately reported. Uh, yeah. This list was, you know, as, as the most exhaustive effort of trying to pull these, these accounts together, but is still itself fraught with, you know, uh, subsequent postscript revision, etc. It's, uh, yeah. Anyway, that, that was the Black War. Really, really awful. So, um... The late 19th century, lots of changes happened in Van Diemen's land. Um, there was a depression in the 1840s caused by a, a bank collapsing. Um, Captain James Ross arrived on his Antarctic exploration. Basically, anyone who was going to Antarctica during this period, which was a number of expeditions, they all stop in Tasmania because it's the Still true last... today, apparently. It's, it's like yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. base for Antarctic exploration for anyone going from Australia or anywhere in that region. Yeah, so when you look through lists of events, there's like every couple of years, there's this explorer turned up, that explorer turned up, and they don't stay very long. In fact, I think Darwin also passed through 
on his Beagle expedition. So did Mark Twain, actually. Mark Twain turned up at one point <laughs> on his trip around the world. Yeah, yeah, it, I read his account of it. Oh, cool. He liked it, thought it was deadly. Yeah, well, it, it, it's meant to be beautiful. Like, if it wasn't for all of the, you know, penal colonies and genocide, um, there'd be very little <laughs> complaint to have about it. You know, it's... Uh, it is apparently a very beautiful place. It looks spectacularly yeah, beautiful. Okay, so in the 40s, you get sort of wavering about transportation as a thing because people are a little uncomfortable with not just the homosexuality, but but also just the morality of, of, you know, sending people half around the world for stealing a loaf of bread. So groups start to come together to organise, like groups of settlers to oppose this. They're, they're now home being used as a dumping ground for the, the dregs of British society and Irish society, which, you know, is Immigrants out! Fair. No more people! <laughs> Australia's full! They got in early. In the 40s and 50s, the Anti-Transportation League campaign to change Van Diemen's land into a, a free place, a proper country rather than a rather than just a, a prison. Transportation to New South Wales ended in the forties, I think in forty six. Uh, and so everyone was being sent to Tasmania. In eighteen fifty, Van Diemen's land got a, a representative government or a responsible government, like the kind we saw in, in Newfoundland in Newfoundland last season. Uh which meant that in addition to the eight people appointed by the governor, there were, there were now to be 16 elected members of the council, elected by free landowning men, over 30, obviously. And they were all from the anti-transportation movement. So the change was on the wind. Queen Victoria was asked to, to revoke the order allowing for transportation, despite objections by by the local governor uh, and what really finished transportation as a punishment was the Victoria Gold Rush where in, in around Melbourne there was the discovery of lots of gold in 1850 and so people wanted to go to Australia people of lower class looking to make their make their mark in the world wanted to go there sending them there for stealing wasn't going to help wasn't you know wasn't a good precedent set Mm. And so eventually transportation was ended. The last ship arrived in 1853, the Vincent, and there was a jubilee celebration to celebrate the end of transportation, greeting this last ship. Uh, 75,000 people have been transported here, or 40% of all the people transported to Australia over that 50, 60 year period. This is also the point, 1854, when the Tasmanian Constitutional Act was passed, which changed the name, which gave um, gave Tasmania a parliament and changed the name from Van Diemen's Land, which had become associated with demons and prisoners and bad things, and they changed the name to Tasmania. All the stuff we've just talked about. Yeah. All yeah. that stuff that, that happened there. Yeah. There's a rebranding effort. It's a lot easier. British troops leave in the 1870s, so we, things are moving towards um, the modern Australia we're more familiar with. Yeah. So in uh, 1898 and 1899, there were two referendums held to determine the feeling around independence from the UK, uh, federalization, uh, basically unifying all the states in Australia into becoming uh, part of the Commonwealth rather than a, a colony. Uh, the majority vote was yes in all the colonies in both referendums. And in hmm. the second referendum, Tasmania was the state with the most overwhelming yes vote in favor of independence. For the second referendum, there were 13,437 yes votes 
for uh, federalization, and 791 people voted against it. So it's a pretty overwhelming majority. Um, wow. In 1901, the bill passes in the British Parliament. Uh, the British monarch would remain the head of state, as uh, they do to today, and the Commonwealth of Australia is born. Uh, the outbreak of World War I in Tasmania in 1914 was greeted by an outpouring of loyalty to the British Empire, which did help to sort of mold certain parts of the local community together and, you know, the wider territory, I guess, uh, as it's, you know, relatively new independent state. In 1914, then the first uh, Tasmanian troops leave to fight in the First World War. And many of these soldiers would go on to fight in Gallipoli, which is uh, where, like, a lot of Australian and New Zealand soldiers um died in the first world war that campaign in yep. gallipoli is uh, often to be often considered to be the beginning of the australian new, Ze- new zealand national consciousness and on the 25th of april yep. every year from then on the celebrated anzac day uh which is the commemoration yep. of the military casualties and veterans in both countries the the oldest the last surviving veteran of of uh, gallipoli was a tasmanian guy called alec campbell who died aged mm. 103 in 2002 and he um, didn't really think it was such a big deal. He stated, wow. for God's sake, don't glorify Gallipoli. It was a terrible fiasco, a total failure and best forgotten. Wow. So um, he was a bit grouchy about it. Sounds like, right. yeah. Um, back home in Tasmania, uh, around this time, so-called enemy aliens were treated pretty badly. Uh, there was a concentration camp established at Claremont, uh, which was soon moved to Bruni Island oh, no. and had almost 50 prisoners by early 1915. Uh, unemployment doubled during the first six months Ooh. of the war and there were a lot of working class people uh, enlisted in the army due to lack of work. The town of Bismarck at the time was uh, renamed to Collinsvale because of anti-German sentiment Fair. and uh, okay. many Tasmanians of German descent who are who were at the time the largest non-British national group in the population were persecuted. Uh, one guy had his dog poisoned apparently uh, so not great. Um, okay. Yeah. That, that's really ramping down the uh, the death and cruelty. Though. Yeah, give, yeah, give them what they're capable of. Not much, like, not much <laughs> compared to yeah. compared to what came before. Yeah, uh, in 1916, yeah. the first all Tasmanian battalion, which is the 40th battalion, leaves for uh, World War One, and they mm-hmm. would serve in the trenches in Passchendaele and the Somme, um, and would have two mm-hmm. of their members awarded the Victoria Cross throughout the course of the war. Wow! Uh, in that same year, uh, the community is divided because of the. Uh, 1916 rising in Ireland where uh, Irish Catholics who live in Tasmania are seen as disloyal to the crown and Mm. are similarly to the Germans are uh, persecuted and uh, ostracized from society in certain certain uh, circles great Uh, there were as the war moved on there were massive casualties to Australian troops which caused enlistments to drop off dramatically because of this the government attempted to introduce conscription in 1916 and again Mm. in 1917 both times they failed uh, I believe conscription was in place, but people who were conscripted into the army could only serve within the Australian territory and could be sent abroad. Uh-huh. Uh, and they tried to ex- tried to expand that and and failed twice. Weird that people wouldn't be keen for that. Yeah. Uh, so the casualties uh, that were suffered by the 40th Battalion in 1918 uh, meant that the battalion was pulled off the front lines two months before the armistice uh, that ended the war, and. Approximately in total, 65,000 Anzac troops served the Gallipoli, and more than 12,000 of them would be killed there. So, um, wow. that's yeah, that's like one of one in five. Yeah, it's one of the uh, one of the like biggest, you know, most well known, I guess, defeats in the war. It's like a you know real disaster yeah. if you, if you know anything about First World War history. 
That was Churchill, by the way. It was yep. Churchill's plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Keep going. Um, it's really yep. not working. Yep. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> In 1932, uh, a guy called Joseph Lyons becomes the Australian Prime Minister and is the only Tasmanian uh, to this day to ever ever hold that post. In World War II, wow. uh, what became known later as the Doomed Battalion uh, was made up of many uh, soldiers from Tasmania and they were ordered to defend Timor uh, by attack from Japan. Uh, I, oh. think, I think it was Dutch Timor at the time. Oh. And less, yeah. Than, yeah. less than a thousand uh, troops were sent there to hold the island against a force of 23,000 Japanese soldiers. So That's a big I island. Tell you how that, yeah, so you can, you can kind of figure out how that went. Uh, after several days of intense fighting, the Australian forces were told to surrender or be bombed out of existence. Um, so most of them did surrender, and most of them ended up uh, on the Burma ro- Railway. Although some uh, stayed behind and staged like a guerrilla uh, campaign against the Japanese occupiers in Timor. But did that eventually subsided after they realized they'd never be able to retake the island. But they did inflict pretty serious casualties during the time that they were there. Uh, one third of the men who were sent from Tasmania in the Second World War never returned. Wow. And yeah, uh, during the time at home, munitions factories were set up in, in Tasmania. It was it's kind of like uh, the their isolation, you know, they're they're the furthest that you can get in Australia from the war, I guess, at that time. Uh, so yeah. it was kind of both a blessing and a curse for the island because, you know, they they were far away from the reach of the Japanese army, but. Um, it meant that yeah. they, they they were expected to do a lot more, I guess, and so they were they were okay. leaned on heavily for agriculture and uh, factories, and um, there were more than five thousand women were recruited into the war effort. So yeah, that's pretty much all I got of World War One. And then uh, in 1964, eventually, compulsory national service for 20 20 year old males was introduced, um, and this is just before okay. Australia becomes involved in Vietnam. Um, Oh, which right. I didn't I didn't actually realize up until recently, but Australia is one of the one of only five countries to be involved in the in the war in Vietnam. Um, hmm. Another one being yeah. New Zealand. And I believe based on the reading that I did, that's because obviously, you know, Vietnam is a lot closer to Australia than it is to uh, the US. And, you know, Australians were, were yeah. genuinely scared about this, the, the threat of communism so close to their yeah, doorstep. Sure. So all in all, 49,000 Australians would serve in the conflict in Vietnam. It was the longest conflict during which Australians served, only recently surpassed by the conflict in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Moving on very very swiftly to modern day, then that's, that's pretty much all I've got. Yeah. Uh, the last, the you know, something that we alluded to earlier then uh, in 1996 is... You know, again, I don't want to re- uh, really want to get into the details of this, but uh, a guy called Martin Bryant changes the face of Australian society um, because of a mass shooting in which he killed 35 people and wounded 23, prompting an immediate change in yeah. gun laws um, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, I have. No, I, I'd never heard of it, but apparently, like everyone it in Australia knows, is a this. huge deal. Yeah, no, I, I remember it. Yeah. I remember it really happening, being on the news and everything. Yeah, yeah, it was like ninety six, wasn't it? It was nineteen ninety six, twenty second of yeah, November, nineteen ninety six. Like eight or nine. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I have some of the details here. Um, I, I don't think we actually need to get into it really. Um, but essentially, the, the he, key he, outcome. The key outcome is is more uh, is more yeah more interesting. And he was he was sentenced to thirty five life sentences. You know, hmm. one for each yeah. count of murder. And 25 years for the remaining 36 charges on uh, five other other offenses, 20 attempted murders, three counts of infliction of grievous bodily harm, 
uh, infliction of wounds. So he remains to this day, I believe, in uh, Hobart's Risden prison, where he is serving out his time in solitary confinement. He's not permitted any visitors other than his immediate family. And his prison papers. Just, just, just to mention uh, about him specifically, because I, I read about it as well. But uh, he has a mental age uh, of an eleven-year-old in the lowest tenth percentile. Wow! So he, it's not, it's not necessarily like a you know, Anders Breivik style malevolent type thing. Yeah, it's that this guy was given lots of guns very easily. Yes. What the hell? He had what, a. You know, he still did it. He but. had a vendetta against, I believe, his uh, his father. Uh, I believe wanted to buy a bed and breakfast, and uh, these this couple essentially bought out the the bed and breakfast from underneath him, and he felt cheated by them. Okay. And this guy Bryant, okay. they were the first two people to die in uh, in this massacre. Oh my God. But I believe he blamed his father, like Bryant's father, after that deal collapsed, uh, later committed suicide, and so he blamed these two people for uh, the death of his father, and that's mm-hmm. that's why he he, right. he began and ended the the mass shooting in that bread and breakfast. Um, and they were the first two victims. Wow. But. but Australia immediately changes their gun laws. Yes, immediately. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. All states restricted the, the legal ownership and use of guns, uh, even for hunting. And the government initiated a mandatory buyback scheme. The gun owners paid approximately uh, $350 million for some around 650,000 firearms uh, wow. over the course of the next few wow. months after after that incident. So. And actually, it's 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 pointed to today as, as like one of the, you know, one of the most efficient reforms of any country's gun yeah. laws. Uh, like a lot of uh, people who campaign for a tighter gun regulation in the U.S. point to Australia as like a yeah uh, a really strong example it, of how how example. you can do it. Yeah, and how change it, how can, it can happen. Be done. Look, it works, and you know, shootings went down massively. They well, ha- has there been? I don't believe. I mean, I, I don't want to say so. with certainty, no. but I don't believe there's been anything on that scale at least. Um, since then yeah, so for sure yeah it was so not not done. to get preachy but it's definitely uh worth definitely thinking worked. about hey guys let, let's not shoot each other yeah having less guns is i don't want to be thing. i don't want to be political but let's not shoot people you know yeah so political so political so uh that leads us on to like pretty much modern day so yep. do you want to talk about sports to start out with mark do you have anything on sports uh, or yes in terms of famous tasmanians uh, I mentioned that there was a famous Tasmanian that neither of you guys will know because you're not a Protestant like me. Uh, Ricky Ponting, I former know him. Aussie cricket captain. I know him. Okay, well, yeah, I've heard of former him. Former Aussie he, uh, cr- cricket captain. Cricket captain, yeah. yeah. Okay. He he uh, on his his first outing for Surrey. Actually, he played for Surrey briefly, uh, which is where I am. Uh, he had 192 runs, uh, which was a record for somebody making their debut debut for the club. He has the most Test runs for an Australian. And also the most catches, uh, and this is in you know international Test cricket, the highest possible level. Uh, he is tied for second place uh, with Steve Waugh, who's also a former Australian cricket captain. They're tied for second place against Sachin Tendulkar, who's the only batsman to have more more runs than than he does. So he was also a bit of a controversial figure, as far as, as far as I know, because he was quite you know grim faced and aggressive and stuff, as as many uh, Aussie cricket captains tend to be. But I, I, I this is my first kind of actually understanding that. Tasmanians within Australian culture uh, are up against uh, a bit of like a negative perception as being kind of like convicty. rough around the edges. Uh, yeah, convicty. It, yeah, kind of like hicks, it strikes rural, me as a kind of like um, seen. the sort of similar to the, the the Isle of Man that we did, where like they're they're just seen as being a bit odd. 
Um, I guess. I don't know. I I put them more like more like more like the Welsh actually. The Welsh are seen as like bit bit rural, but like the guys in the Isle of Man are a bit like there's there's a weird, dark, (laughs) dark spiritual fairies mad. It's a bit more Summer Isle, you know, a bit more like burning people in a in a in a wicker human. Uh, Whereas I think it's just like standard uh, urban snobbery more so. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think it's much worse than that. I, I did put up a thing on Reddit asking for like people to get in touch and stuff, and I did get a few like mainlanders complaining about you know making jokes about about uh, Tasmanian stuff. Um, but in general, they were basically saying that like the, the interior of the land is filled with um, uh, filled with hydroelectricity production, uh, very rainy, uh, not a huge amount going on economically. Um, they they didn't have really a lot of stuff. One one thing was that apparently uh, uh, Tazi people still say cobber, where people on the mainland don't really say cobber, but uh, like it's an old it's like saying struth or bonza or whatever. But like apparently Tasmanians still say cobber, which is pretty good. Uh, other famous people, um, Errol Flynn, the swashbuckling oh, actor yeah. from the past, was born here, but pretended yep. he was Irish mostly during his career. All right, because that was more in romantic. like Flynn. Hmm. That's the, in like Flynn is the phrase. That comes yes, in. yes, referring to in his like ability Flynn. to uh, to have a lot of adultery. Uh-huh. I mean, yes, <laughs> yeah, a lot of adultery. He yes. did. Yeah. That 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 is fair. Uh, a couple he of was people, very diseased by the time he died. Yeah, a couple of other people. Um, Eddie Jones, who is the current head coach, like a uh, rugby union head coach of England, is from Tasmania. Is he? Yeah, from wow. Tasmania. Yeah. And uh, the aviator and founder of Qantas Airlines, Sir Hud- Hudson Fish, is also from um, huh. Tasmania. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. And then, yeah. of course, there's a fictional character from Tasmania, uh, Taz, ah, the Tasmanian Taz. Devil, from, yes. from Looney Tunes. Indeed. Yes, Looney Tunes. Who yeah. Was uh, yeah, he's a Looney Tunes. Probably yeah. where most people first learned about Tasmanian Devils. And a pointless place to learn because they look nothing like Taz and they behave nothing like Taz. Um, yep. They're actually kind of little, little, little bears almost. Yep. Little screaming bears. Uh, I actually have. I found a YouTube of uh, them screaming, so we could probably chuck that in. Oh here. Yep. So we can Get a little taste of that. They're 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 early known as Beelzebub's pup or Diabolus Orsinus, which are good names. Yeah. Um, but they're actually uh, under threat at the moment. They're endangered um, apparently since 2013. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we should just like so kind of paint people a picture, I guess. They're like little. They're like black. sort of. They look almost like a kind of weasel kind of looking thing. Um, black, yeah, like, I was thinking like a, like a muscly badger. Yeah, muscly black badger. That I was uh, they have, a, but they're, they're marsupials, right? Yes, they are marsupials. They're the yeah. world's largest carnivorous marsupial. Carnivorous, um, right? And they are characterized by their there. stocky and muscular build. Black fur, pungent odor, ex- and extremely loud and nice. disturbing screeches, and ferocity when feeding. So they are they are quite ferocious, Hence like um, the yeah. devil stuff. The devil, yeah. So, but the disease that's getting them is actually horrifying. So since 1996, oh, yeah. a seventy percent reduction in the population because of a transmissible, yeah. contagious face cancer disease. Whoa! Which is horrifying. Yeah, yeah. face cancer. It's just ev- on every level. There's like. Each point of that is awful. Yeah. So there's some kind of some kind of transmissible disease that causes them to develop lesions on their face and they die. Yeah. Um, and Ugh. within densely populated areas, the mortality rate was like 
100% dead in a year kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so starting just... in 2013, uh, a bunch of Tasmanian devils were being sent around to zoos all over the world as part of the Australian government's Save the Tasmanian Devil program. Uh, so I, I, I don't yep. know exactly how that's going, but... Uh, they I've are, heard they that they've come back now. from very recently. They've come back from the endangered status okay, to just okay. slightly not endangered. Right. Uh, okay. Somebody, somebody on Facebook said that to me that they've just tipped over the uh, whatever the threshold is for I, the IUCN red list is the, yeah. the standard. Uh, one other tidbit that I have is a part of uh, part of the Lord of the Rings was shot here as well, even though it's it's largely associated with right. uh, New Zealand, but apparently. Uh, Cradle Mountain in Tasmania is largely used as a backdrop for Mordor in oh, Tasmania, which is uh, so the good place, know, the nice place in 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 Lord of the Rings. Yes, if you're not familiar, um, there, there's a bit of controversy about the Tasmanian tigers. Yes, uh, they're thought to be extinct. Yeah, thylacine. Yeah, pretty, pretty, since the 30s. pretty much extinct they're, as they're, far they're, as i'm aware extinct. it's they they became Gosh. extinct I, I think apparently in 1936 and they they're really cool looking yeah. they're actually called a thylacine yeah. and mm-hmm. is there is i think that's a scientific name i'm not sure but the, yeah they're they're yeah more, they're more like a marsupial noticed. dog they look sort of like a dog between a wolf and a tiger is what i say is what stripey I like a tiger they look stripey but they, they sort of have a wolf looking face but people keep claiming to film them on shaky camcorders like right. all, okay. all the time. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's no. a little bit of controversy about whether they're all definitely dead, but they almost certainly are all definitely dead. Well, they, they, they survived the longest in Tasmania because dingoes were their main competition in ah. uh, mainland Australia. And apparently and they dingoes were never reached Tasmania. So yeah. they, they survived until, as I said, until around the 1930s in Tasmania just because they didn't have any major competition cool. from uh, from dingoes. So... But yeah, they 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 did eventually die out apparently in, in 1936. But you should look them up; they're they're pretty cool to look at. Um, there's some old historical oh, photos, yeah. and they look they look th- pretty interesting. They look cool. Yeah. The, the last thing I'd like to mention is that a big attraction in, in around Hobart is the Museum of Old and New Art, Mona, which is uh, like people call it out as being a reason to go to the island in and of itself. Yep. Wow. Uh, right. It is described as a subversive adult Disneyland that costs two hundred million Australian dollars to uh, to set up. And Mark, I think you know more about the founder. Well, the founder is a, a bit of a maniac. He's a guy called David Dominic Walsh, who's a, a, a rabid atheist. Uh, so he was a professional gambler. He created a system for betting on horse racing, and has funded this 200 million museum. His tax settlement with the government was 38 million. So that gives you an idea of how wealthy this guy is. Um, it's it's kind of like up the river from Hobart. Mm. You approach it by boat, apparently. Yeah. And it's cut into the side of the cliffs around the Berrydale Peninsula. Um, I have just some of... Uh, I was reading an article about it and they pulled out just examples of the kinds of stuff you'll see in there. So uh, just s- s- saddle up. Um, from a wall of 151 sculptures of women's vulvas to racks of rotting cow carcasses, a waterfall, the droplets of which form words from the most Googled headlines of the day, the remains of a suicide bomber cast in chocolate, a grossly Mm -hmm. fattened red Porsche, a lavatory in which, through a system of mirrors and binoculars, you can view your own anus, mummies, x-ray images of rats carrying crucifixes, a library of blank books, cuneiform tablets, 
and stone blocks from the Hiroshima railway station destroyed by the atom bomb, its most loathed exhibit is also one of its most popular. Vim del Voyes, the Cloaca Profesional, a large reeking machine that replicates the human digestive system, turning food into feces, which it excretes daily at 2 p.m. <laughs> wow. I like that it's 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 on the reg. So it's it's very uh, very much a, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, you'll love it. And I am. I would I yes, would love please. to visit that place. If that you really if you prefer your um no, your your classical Greek allegorical tales when painted on oil canvas, probably not, not for you. Will it allow me to see my own butt, Joe? Will it no. allow me to see my own butt? No. That's well, ask and answer. Done. It will allow you to see a Florentine, um, you know. Art model, but but a Florentine, right? But uh, uh, anything else, gentlemen, before we wrap it up? I think we're good, uh, super done. All right, perfect. it's meant to be beautiful. Go see it. Yep, it sounds great. There's a lot, lot of really pay, interesting history. Ticket, I'll, uh... Uh, take an axe when you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be the one without the you axe. don't want to be the that one without the axe. An axe if, if this episode has taught us anything, that's what that's that's what we've learned. <laughs> be the one with the axe, yeah, always be the one with the axe. So, yeah, you can find uh, some more links to uh, interesting and relevant information that we talked about in our show notes, which will be available in your podcast app or else you can find them at 80daysPodcast.com, which is our website. You can also find more episodes of the podcast there. We would love if you could help us out with uh, ratings on Apple Podcasts uh, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, find us on Facebook, uh, Twitter or Instagram, all under 80 Days Podcast. Uh, you can also email us directly at 80daysPodcast at gmail.com. Before we go, we also have to thank our very generous Patreon backers who help us to keep the podcast going. This month's new backers include Colin Macarius, Simon Green, Roland Seymour, and Emily Cranfield. Heroes. Thank you all so much for your support. If you want to become a Patreon backer and have a say in where we visit next, please be sure to visit patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. Mark, where can people find more about you on the internet? Uh, probably best to hit me up on the old Twitter at MarkBoyle86. And Joe. And uh, timetoburn.com will give you some further info about where to find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or at my website, lukejkelly.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Thank you. It almost sounds like a joke. Almost, okay. except the punchline is he ate all the people. <laughs> the punchline is him at the fucking gallows saying it was fucking delicious. <laughs> In his mono and accent. <laughs> okay.